0: welcome to the Strange Matters Podcast. Here at Strange Matters, we discuss everything that is mysterious, bizarre, and unexplained. I'm Sean, and I will be the host for this episode. In this episode, we will be talking about a very interesting and mysterious case of an unsolved disappearance. This surprising vanishing took place in New York City in 1910, and was considered at the time to be one of the most famous missing persons cases in American history. This episode will be a discussion on the unsolved disappearance of Dorothy Arnold. The shocking story of Dorothy vanishing, a young lady who would be known as the lost heiress, would quickly sweep across America. No one could answer the burning question, how did this friendly, popular, and wealthy woman simply disappear from the world while walking down a busy city street in the middle of the day? A great summary of this case can be quoted from a 1932 newspaper article that I found, written about the mystery. And it goes, On a crisp December day in 1910, Dorothy Arnold walked out of the pages of life and left behind her a mystery that outdoes fiction. There have been a thousand theories, a million rumors, but not one shred of real evidence which might explain where she went, how she went, or why. Within this episode, I will go over the events leading up to the disappearance, the unusual investigation that followed, and the variety of theories and rumors that sprung up as the mystery of this missing New York City socialite became the case of the nation. So let's start diving into this mysterious case. Dorothy Harriet Camille Arnold was a young lady who went missing in the winter of 1910. And it is an interesting case in both how she quickly vanished, but also how her disappearance was handled by her prestigious family. This mystery was a suggestion sent in to one of our listeners, Ellie. So thanks a lot, Ellie, for sending us this idea. Dorothy Arnold was born on July 1st, 1885 in New York City into the wealthy family of Francis Arnold, a perfume importer, and his wife, Mary Martha Arnold. Dorothy would grow up to be a socialite for her distinguished family, who were direct descendants from English passengers who came to the New World aboard the Mayflower. Her father was a well-respected scholar and businessman, a graduate from Harvard and senior partner of his company, which imported a variety of fancy goods to sell in New York City. The Arnold family were considered to be quite distinguished, even listed in the Social Register, which is a directory of family names who are claimed to form the social elite. The standing of her family and their place in society will play a strong part in how this mystery would play out. Dorothy was an educated young woman herself, attending the private Velton School for Girls, and later graduating from Bryn Mauer College in 1905, where she majored in literature and language. Aspiring to become a writer, Dorothy lived at the family home after graduation and attempted to complete several works, though her chosen career path was one her family was not too keen on. In the spring of 1910, Dorothy built up the courage to send a short story she had written to McClure's magazine, which was an American Illustrated monthly periodical which was popular at the time. Unfortunately, her story was rejected from the magazine, which did not feel it was up to quality to publish. Once her family and friends found out that her work was not good enough, they would tease Dorothy and belittle her dreams of being a writer. Attempting to shield herself, Dorothy would go on to secretly rent a post office box so that she could receive mail from magazine and publishers without her family's intervening. Later that year in November, Dorothy wrote another short story titled The Poinsettia and the Flame and once again tried to get it published in McClure's magazine. However, just as with her first attempt, this story was also rejected. Having failed twice now in a row, Dorothy felt embarrassed and upset that perhaps she was perhaps not good enough to make it as a writer, and that her schooling had been a waste. It was around this time that Dorothy had tried to get her father's permission to move out on her own, but he forbid it. Though Dorothy pleaded that she could commit to writing and become more proficient if she was alone, her father told her that a good writer can write anywhere. So Dorothy would continue to live at home, and would continue to have no success publishing any of her works. Some weeks after receiving her second rejection letter, Dorothy would leave her house on one particularly fateful day. It was December 12, 1910. Dorothy told her mother that she had plans to go out looking for a dress to wear to her little sister Marjorie's debutante party. Her mother, Mary, replied that she could go out with her to help pick out a dress, but Dorothy declined and, and said, told her that she would be fine, but would in fact call the house if she needed a second opinion before setting out. Dorothy would leave the house at around 11 a.m. that morning, and according to her family, she was carrying about $25 in cash, equivalent to $614 in modern time. Dorothy's route that day took her from her home on 79th Street down to the Park and Tilford store at 5th Avenue and 27th Street, about an hour-long stroll. There at the food and grocery store, Dorothy charged half a pound of chocolate to her account. Now, it's quite a long distance to walk for sweets, but according to an advertisement I found from the time, Park and Tilford had the highest quality chocolate and candies of high purity and excellence. So perhaps Dorothy only wanted the best. A clerk there at Park and Tilford's store remembered selling the chocolate to Dorothy at 1.45pm, close to two hours after she had left her family house. The clerk, when later questioned remarked that nothing felt odd about the encounter, and that Dorothy seemed to be in high spirits. After this, Dorothy walked a short distance to Brentano's bookstore, where she would purchase a humorous book called Engaged Girl Sketches. The clerk at Brentano's also would later mention that Dorothy was courteous, and again would say he did not pick up on anything unusual or noticeably strange about her behavior. Interestingly, while leaving the bookstore, Dorothy happened to come across one of her close friends, another young lady by the name of Gladys King. Gladys would later reveal that Dorothy and her would spend a few minutes discussing Marjorie Arnold's debutante party, and once again said that Dorothy was friendly and did not show any signs that she was in distress or disturbed in any way. Gladys said farewell and went on her way, but remembered during their goodbyes Dorothy saying she was going to walk through Central Park on her way home. Gladys waved at Dorothy as she left, last seeing the young woman on 27th Street, around 2 p.m., Later that evening, Francis and Mary Arnold began to grow worried when Dorothy had still not shown back up at the house and had not called in either, something very uncharacteristic to their daughter. Francis tried calling around to several of Dorothy's close friends, asking if they had seen her or knew her whereabouts, however none of them had any clue as to where she was. One of these friends, Elsie Henry, remained concerned and called the Arnold home late that night, after midnight, to see if Dorothy had ever returned. Elsie was told by Mary Arnold that Dorothy had in fact returned and was at home. Elsie was very relieved to hear this and asked to speak to Dorothy for a few minutes. However, Mary grew flustered on the phone and reluctantly said that Dorothy had a bad headache and had gone to bed early. After the phone call, Elsie believed her friend to be safe in the sleep, but little did she know that this would be the first time that the Arnold family would put their prestigious and social level above the fact that their oldest daughter was simply missing the investigation into the missing Dorothy Arnold would be slow to start, pretty much entirely because of the Arnold family's actions. The social family believed that if they announced their daughter's disappearance to the police, and news got out about it, that it would draw a large amount of unwanted attention, and would become a very embarrassing situation for the well-off and distinguished family. Apparently, the thought of their daughter being kidnapped or lying dead somewhere in Central Park was less threatening to Francis and Mary Arnold than errand gossip at the country club. It would take several weeks, in fact, of having no news about Arnold and lying about her whereabouts to those who ask before the Arnolds finally broke down and reported her disappearance to the police. However, before that time, the family did try to take matters into their own hands and sought out someone who could help, but more importantly, be discreet about it. John Keith was a lawyer and a close friend of Francis Arnold, The day after Dorothy had not come home, John had been called over to the house, where he was informed of the missing daughter. John Keith was giving permission to look into Dorothy's room for possible clues to her whereabouts, so he inspected her room and tried to find anything to give an indication of where she was, or even just her state of mind during the time that she vanished. During his search, John found that nothing of importance of Dorothy's seemed to be missing, all of her clothes were accounted for, and no expensive belongings or traveling items were gone. While looking through her mail and letters, he found that several of them displayed foreign postmarks. He also found two folders for transatlantic steamliners on her desk, and both of these clues would later be used to come up with one possible theory regarding Dorothy's fate. One interesting aspect of John Keith's search was when he checked out the fireplace in Dorothy's room he could make out what looked like a number of papers had been recently burned in the fireplace. From the scraps that could be recovered, it appeared that the burnt papers were the charred remains of Dorothy's manuscripts for the short stories that she had sent in to McClure's magazine. There are several theories on their own regarding the burnt works found in the fireplace. The most obvious conclusion is that Dorothy threw her own writing in the fireplace due to the depression and embarrassment caused by her two rejections for publication. However, there are also some who believe that it was not Dorothy who burned the papers, but rather her parents. Based on their actions already, it isn't too far-fetched to believe that Francis or Mary attempted to burn these stories and rejection lenders in an attempt to make sure that this part of the story did not get leaked. It was troublesome and embarrassing enough for the Arnolds to be in a predicament of having a missing daughter. Perhaps they would feel even more shame if it came out that she was a failed writer. In any case, John Keith would spend the next two weeks combing the city looking for any sign of the missing girl. He visited all the hospitals, morgues, and even jails around the city, but his search remained fruitless. He would even expand his search to several neighboring major cities, like Boston and Philadelphia. Still, no sign of Dorothy could be found. Frustrated and realistic about the limitations of his one-man search, and suggested that they hire the legendary Pinkerton detective agency. The Pinkertons took the case for the right amount of money and immediately went to work, searching all the areas around the city that Dorothy had been known to frequent to ask questions. The investigators interrogated current and past friends, classmates, and acquaintances of Dorothy and the Arnold family. But still, they couldn't find anyone who had seen her since the afternoon of December 12th. Astounded that they could not find any evidence or witness accounts at all that could provide an answer, The detectives went over the clues that John Keith had discovered in Dorothy's room. After seeing the written letters that Dorothy had received from overseas, the detectives came up with a possible theory. They believed that Dorothy might have planned and schemed away, and when she was able to sneak away from her overbearing and elitist family, and travel to Europe to elope with an unknown lover. Shifting their focus, several Pinkerton agents were shipped over to Europe to see what could be found. Recent marriage records for several countries were looked through, but none matched Dorothy Arnold, though they acknowledged it could be possible that she had adopted an entirely new name and persona. Agents also kept a lookout for steamliners that arrived in several European ports that had shipped from America, searching for any woman who matched Dorothy's description. Just as with every other avenue investigation, however, there were still no clues to be found across the Atlantic. After weeks of fruitless searching and the ideas and theories beginning to dry up, the Pinkertons and John Keith finally persuaded the Arnold family to contact the police and file a report for their missing daughter. The police, already fighting an uphill battle since so much time had passed since the disappearance, wanted to get the word out to as many as possible. The police wanted the Arnolds to hold a press conference so that all the news outlets could publish a story of the missing woman. Francis Arnold resisted at first, as making his daughter's disappearance the public news of the town was the exact opposite of what he wanted. Eventually, though, he did give in, and the press conference was put together on January 25th, and the word would finally get out to the city about the fact that Dorothy was missing, six weeks after her disappearance. At that press conference, Francis Arnold announced the news that Dorothy was missing to the gathered reporters, and also put out a $1,000 reward to any relevant information, a reward that would be the equivalent to $25,000 today. After his statement was made, the floor was open to the reporters to ask any questions. One of the reporters asked Francis if it was possible that Dorothy had simply run off with a man that she otherwise would not have been able to date, due to the strict and exclusive social standards of the family. Francis grew angry at the question, saying, I would have been glad to see her associate more with young men than she did, especially some young men of brains and position one whose profession or business would keep him occupied. I don't approve of young men who have nothing to do. This quote was a bit confusing at first for the reporters, but after digging into Dorothy's past, it soon made sense. It would seem that Francis Arnold's anger about lazy men was a reference to George Griscom Jr. George was an older man who had met Dorothy while she was attending Bryn College. The two unlikely pair would soon become romantically involved. George was an engineer who came from a very wealthy family, based in Pennsylvania. It was eventually discovered that just a few months before the disappearance, in September of 1910, Dorothy had left her home and told her parents that she would be visiting a former college classmate in Boston. This was actually just a lie, as Dorothy actually spent a week living with George Griscom at the Pittsburgh hotel that he was living at. Francis and Mary would be alerted to this secret rendezvous, when they found out that Dorothy had taken $500 worth of jewels from the family and pawned them for only $60, in order to have enough money to allow her to spend the week with her new lover. Once Dorothy was back home, her parents scolded her and told her that she was not to see George ever again, as they found the idea of a man nearly twice her age, who was staying in a hotel living off his family's wealth, to be an unsuitable match to their daughter. Despite the forbidding warning of her parents, Dorothy once again went against her family's wishes and we would meet up with George Griscom in secret one last time in November, shortly before the older man would leave to go on a European vacation with his parents, and a few weeks before Dorothy's disappearance. Many would believe that George had to have something to do with Dorothy's disappearance. It would certainly seem to fit several of the theories that had already been established by John Keith and the Pinkerton detectives. It could be that Dorothy ran off so she could be with George, a man who her family despised. By vanishing, she could try and start a new life with her lover, perhaps using a separate identity. Also, the fact that George was vacationing in Europe when all this went down could be another clue. Remember that Dorothy had several letters postmarked from Europe in her bedroom, along with several pamphlets for steamliners that could cross the Atlantic. Seeking to crack open the mystery and finally find their missing daughter, the Arnold sent a telegram to Florence, Italy, where George Griscom and his family was staying at the time. Francis and Mary Arnold asked George for information about their daughter's whereabouts and what he knew of her disappearance. However, in the reply message, George denied knowing anything at all about Dorothy's location, nor did he even know that she had gone missing. This was not a satisfactory answer for the Arnolds. Several weeks later, Dorothy's mother Mary and her brother traveled overseas and tracked down George in Italy. Surprising him in his hotel room, the pair angrily questioned the man, demanding to know the truth of what he was holding out on. George, stuck by his original answers though, and despite the heated exchange, he again told his side of the story, that he had not seen Dorothy since he had left America and that he had no idea that she had gone missing. Still not trusting the man, Mary Arnold demanded that he give her the letters that her daughter had sent to him while he was on vacation. George also brushed this off, saying that nothing of relevance were in the letters, and furthermore that he had disposed of them a while ago anyways. Mary Arnold was forced to return to America, having gained no new information at all, and the investigation continued spinning its wheels with nothing to go on. A month later, the Griscom family would return to the United States, and George would hold his own press conference, where he stated that he terribly missed Dorothy and was worried, and also dropped the announcement that the two would be married whenever she was found, on the one condition that he was granted permission by the parents. Mary Arnold quickly told eager reporters that all that was nonsense, and that she would never give permission for the marriage to go through with such an unsavory type such as George. Some believe that this was merely a publicity stunt so that George could attach his own name and face to the popular mystery, as well as a way to distance himself as a suspect. However, it must be noted that George Griscom did spend several thousand dollars, as much as $75,000 in modern times, on newspaper ads and publicity statements searching for Dorothy, and asking that, wherever she is, to come back home. There are conflicting feelings on George Griscom in terms of his role and involvement in the disappearance. Did Dorothy and he have a secret plan to meet up so they could finally be together? It would seem unlikely, given their past, that any such thing could ever be accomplished. There would be just too many people looking at him and digging into his life to get away with such an elaborate plan, even if Dorothy did change her name. Also, the fact that he would spend a good deal of his own money on advertisements looking for Dorothy seems to show that he really was searching for her, unless he was content with wasting a whole lot of his money to simply put up a facade when, in reality, he was with her all along. Otherwise, there's not a whole lot to connect him due to the disappearance. There's basically no evidence pointing towards a motive considering foul play on any kind, so the question comes down to whether he was in contact and scheming with Dorothy to allow her to vanish. Or was he just on a relaxing vacation, having a good time in Italy when his secret girlfriend just happened to disappear, and he really did have no clue what was going on? In any case, now that the George Griscom Jr. lead had dried up, there wasn't really any further clues or evidence the police could come up with. So all that was left was to deal with the numerous rumors and theories that spread after the investigation slowed down. There were many calls from people all over the United States claiming that they had seen a sighting of the missing woman. This was mainly due to the fact that the police had spread pictures and paperwork about the missing woman from New York all across North America. The popular New York Times newspaper had articles in it nearly every day, keeping the public up to date on the latest news and thoughts on the case. It could be expected, with any case of this magnitude and popularity, that anyone who wanted to get in on the action and get a little publicity themselves was contacting the police whenever they saw a woman that even somewhat closely matched Dorothy Arnold's description. The police had trouble handling the amount of phone calls and tips that were sent in, but every lead that they did track down proved to be just a case of mistaken identity. Along with the false claims of sightings, the Arnold family also received two ransom notes from two different sources in which the alleged kidnappers claimed to have Dorothy in their custody and wanted a large sum of money in exchange. The police looked into these supposed kidnappers, but they too also turned out to be false, hoaxes by people who, once again, wanted some publicity. It was around this time that the police and the Arnold family split in terms of their beliefs and dedication to finding Dorothy. The New York law enforcement still believed that the missing woman was still alive and out there somewhere. There simply was no evidence or clues of any kind pointing towards the fact that the young lady had been murdered or taken forcibly. The hope was that Dorothy would eventually come back home from wherever she had run off to. The Arnold family was not so optimistic, however, and would go on record saying they believed that their daughter and sister were dead. In fact, in another press conference, Francis Arnold would confess that he believed that his daughter had been ambushed and killed during her walk home through Central Park, and that the killers had most likely dumped her body into the reservoir. When asked why he now no longer believed that his daughter was alive, Francis stated that the family had two clues that all but confirmed his suspicion. When asked further, Francis also said that they would not disclose these two vital clues to the public. The New York police, though, would almost immediately debunk Francis Arnold's theory on his daughter's fate. The reservoir had been frozen solid for several days before and after Dorothy's disappearance, so it would not make sense to toss a corpse onto a frozen body of water to try to hide it. Also, Central Park had been searched through vigorously, and not a single piece of evidence could be found that pointed to someone being assaulted or killed there. Some months later in the spring, when the water thawed out, the police would go on to search the reservoir, but again, no signs of Dorothy was ever found. Along with Francis Arnold's theory that his daughter had been murdered and disposed of, and the police's version in which she was still alive, there were several other possible explanations as to what happened to Dorothy. One theory that began to circulate during the investigation was that perhaps Dorothy had fallen or slipped in the icy conditions and was rendered unconscious. The prone body of Dorothy would be found and taken to a nearby hospital, where she either remained in a coma-like state or awoke but had amnesia caused by the brain trauma. Unable to say who she was, either physically or due to memory issues, Dorothy remained hidden in some hospital room while the city outside searched for her. This theory was stricken down almost as quickly as it began, though, as all the area's hospitals were searched for Dorothy, or a woman at least matching her description, first by the family friend John Keith, then by the Pinkerton detectives, and once again by the police. None of them found anyone or anything that could make this explanation possible. So, the concussion and amnesia theory was thrown out as a serious answer to the mystery. Of course, with a case like this, there are many who would believe that foul play is involved somehow. There are numerous theories stating that Dorothy was either attacked, drugged, or beaten and abducted, or kidnapped by either a lone criminal or a group. It does make sense in a way, there are plenty of other cases that we know of, of innocent and random people suddenly being taken and captured by a disturbed individual or a pair. Perhaps Dorothy was murdered and her body taken away just like her father believed, Or maybe her abductors were keeping her alive for ransom and monetary plans, or maybe for something even more cruel and sadistic. There are several major issues with this theory, however. One problem is that Dorothy was last seen in the middle of the afternoon on a busy street in a part of the city not known for criminal activity. It's hard to imagine that a young woman could be forcibly and possibly violently ambushed and abducted on a busy city street, without a number of people noticing. Francis Arnold believed his daughter was taking in Central Park, but it isn't even clear that she actually walked through there. It was only known that was her intended destination, because Dorothy mentioned that route to her friend Gladys King. Perhaps she changed her mind and took a different route, walking on some other streets. It's impossible to say. However, the police and many others found it hard to believe that an abduction of any kind happened in that part of the city in the middle of the afternoon, and as such was also not considered as being one of the likelier answers. George Griscom, Jr., Dorothy's private romantic interest, would soon come back into the picture with his own thoughts on the missing woman's eventual fate. George theorized that it could be possible that Dorothy had broken down and committed suicide. His reasoning behind that was his belief that his girlfriend grew depressed and despondent due to the continued rejections of her short stories and the failure of her career as a writer. George claimed to have an inside look at Dorothy's depression that others did not, and one of the letters that she had sent to him expressed her feelings, saying, "'McClure's has turned me down. Failure stares me in the face. All I can see ahead is a long road with no turning. Mother will always think an accident has happened.'" This ominous statement can certainly give an impression that Dorothy did have something in mind about ending it all due to her failures in her short-lived writing career. It is interesting how George never mentioned this before, or turned over the letter earlier in the investigation, especially when Mary Arnold traveled all the way to Italy to specifically ask about any letters sent to him. Also, though it may just be a crazy coincidence around this time, Andrew Griscom, a cousin of George took his own life by jumping from an ocean liner returning to america after he had been turned down by a wealthy english governess while some might think there's some kind of strange connection between his cousin's suicide and perhaps dorothy's suicide most likely this is just a strange occurrence and a coincidence the suicide angle was eventually picked up by others close to dorothy though including some of her family members and close friends according to the arnold's version though It wasn't her nowhere career that would cause her breakdown, but rather her troublesome and faltering relationship with her lover, George Griscom. After sneaking around, spending a good deal of her own money and meeting with George, and knowing that she was perhaps losing the respect of her family for her devotion to this man, only to have him turn her down, this could have sent her over the edge. George Griscom, of course, denied any trouble in their relationship, again stating that his eventual intention was to marry Dorothy. The police investigators did not really fully support the suicide theory, though it perhaps did hold more weight than the foul play explanation. While Dorothy's family and close ones would believe she was either murdered or took her own life, another rumor came about that would soon grow to become one of the most popular theories. In this line of reasoning, the thought is that Dorothy found out that she was pregnant, most likely as a result of her and George Griscom's romantic involvement perhaps fearing the consequences of carrying a baby out of wedlock, especially with a man that her family did not approve of. Or maybe even George confessed that he didn't want to raise a baby with her. In any case, Dorothy became convinced that she could not have the baby. In this theory, Dorothy made up her mind to seek out an abortion, performed at a secret location that could discreetly carry out the procedure, since her social life and reputation would forever be ruined if such news was ever made public. Though this theory was popular in the gossip circles around the city, the family denied any such rumors that their daughter was pregnant. The abortion explanation would pick up steam a few years later, though, when an illegal abortion clinic was raided by the police. This underground clinic became notoriously known as the House of Mystery, as reportedly several young women who went in there to have the procedures done were never seen again, perhaps dying as a result of the operation. One of the doctors who had worked at the clinic confessed to the police that Dr. Meredith, who ran the clinic, had confided to him that he had worked on Dorothy Arnold in secret, and that she had died after experiencing complications from the abortion procedure. This doctor would inform the district attorney that multiple women had suffered the same fate, and that the clinic would simply burn their bodies in the furnace to get rid of any incriminating evidence. Thus, the summary of this theory is that Dorothy had gone to the clinic without anyone outside's knowledge, had died on the operating table, and was reduced to ashes and disposed of. After the clinic raid and the testimony of the doctor, the district attorney believed this theory and concluded that Dorothy had died in the secretive clinic. Francis Arnold went public stating that this explanation was ridiculous and absolutely untrue. As there was no evidence that she was ever pregnant— and the only thing connecting her to this clinic was this one disgraced doctor. George Griscom would also agree, saying that Dorothy was not pregnant with this child. Despite the strong conviction of the Arnold family that this theory had no basis in truth, it was still considered one of the more likelier and realistic explanations, and also one of the juicier answers that could be told in gossip and the social life of the city. Lastly, there is one argument that ties in several different theories, intertwining in one complicated explanation as to what happened to Dorothy Arnold. This theory came to light in 1916, when a criminal and felon, Edward Glenorris, made a confession to the police while serving time in a prison in Rhode Island. Edward claimed that he had taken part of a criminal endeavor in which he was paid several hundred dollars in exchange for helping get rid of a young woman's body in December of 1910. Edward's story is a bit convoluted, but starts when he was contacted by a fellow criminal that only went by the nickname Little Louie. This Little Louie hired Edward to drive a woman across the state of New York to dispose of the body. Edward agreed, and drove himself and Louie, to a secluded spot where they met two mysterious men. One of the men was only referred to as Doc by his companion, who was a wealthy and well-dressed older man. According to Edward, his memory of this upscale individual closely matched the description of George Griscom, Jr. The two men handed over the body of the unconscious woman, and Edward and Little Louie loaded the body in the trunk and set out. During the drive, Little Louie confessed to Edward that the woman's name was Dorothy. Edward would also describe a ring that he saw on the woman's index finger, a description which closely matched one of the known rings that Dorothy owned, which was not found in her possessions in her bedroom after the disappearance. The next day, the man, only referred to as Doc, arrived to inform the men to finish the job. This Doc told the men that the poor woman had unfortunately died at her home during an operation. Edward and little Louis wrapped the dead body in plastic, and drove to a dilapidated house in New Rochelle, burying the woman in the cellar. So this theory is a pretty fun and interesting way to explain Dorothy's fate, tying in several of the key players and taking ideas from other established rumors. This theory combines the idea that George Griscom was involved, along with the underground failed abortion procedure, and also the criminal element used to dispose of the body. However, it must be said that all of this reasoning relies entirely on the word of a convicted felon george griscom obviously denied any such allegations that he had hired men to get rid of dorothy's body none of the doctors at the rated clinic agreed that such an enterprise would be taken as previously stated by one of the doctors any woman who died would simply be incinerated at the on-site furnace there would just be no need to hire thugs to get rid of a body especially one as high profile as dorothy arnold Also, the police would go and investigate the areas mentioned in Edward Glenorris' story, and though they thoroughly searched cellars of houses in the area that Edward mentioned, no bodies were ever found. It would seem that this entire explanation was all just based on the imagination of an imprisoned criminal, perhaps wanting to get in on the publicity of the case and make a name for himself. As we have seen countless times before, and even covered previous examples in other true crime cases, covered here at strange matters in any case the police were growing tired of chasing down these outlandish claims and rumors as each claim that arose that gave a new explanation had not a single shred of evidence to back it up two months after dorothy's disappearance the arnold family received a postcard showing a new york city postmark the car displayed a simple message i am safe and the postcard was signed dorothy Francis Arnold admitted that the handwriting looked to be a close match to his daughter's, though he also believed that anyone could have worked at copying the style of Dorothy, as there had been several examples of her writing that had been spread in the newspapers. As far as the Arnolds and the police were concerned, this letter was as much as a hoax as the earlier fake ransom notes had been. It is pretty sickening to think of people who would take the time to send a fake kidnapping letter or postcard trying to match the missing woman's handwriting, just to get a reaction out of the family, and doing it all for a joke or a prank. Soon after this latest hoax, the police admitted that they were frustrated and just lost in the investigation of this case. After all the time had passed, there was still absolutely nothing to go on, only a continual stream of fake sightings and countless rumors sprouting up. The New York police would soon announce that they would no longer be putting manpower on the missing person case of Dorothy Arnold, and the investigation dwindled to a stop. The police commissioner, William Flynn, was quoted as saying, The girl has now been missing for 75 days, and in all that time, not a single clue has been found that was worth the name. We have no evidence that a crime has been committed, and the case is now one of a missing person and nothing more. The police would occasionally look into tips sent in or reported sightings, but just as with every other potential lead, nothing would ever lead to Dorothy and interest and optimism, and finding her ever again would fade with each passing day. As time went on, there would be more calls reporting sightings, more hoax letters sent to the family claiming to be Dorothy. And as with every previous iteration, these were also just plain false and misleading. The Arnold family would eventually give up hope that their daughter would be found, and even more so that any answer would ever come out of the mystery. By the end of it, Francis Arnold would have spent a quarter of a million dollars searching for his missing daughter, all to no avail. Francis would pass away in 1922, his will containing no mentions of his daughter Dorothy. By the time of his death, the man was entirely convinced that she was not alive. Mary Arnold did not share her husband's conviction, as she still held out hope that Dorothy would one day come home, or in any case, she was still out there alive somewhere. Mary Arnold would die in 1928. 18 years after her daughter's disappearance. The close family friend and lawyer, John Keith, waited until both Arnold and Mary had died before revealing his own thoughts on the case. From what he knew of the family and Dorothy, and what he could gather out of the situation leading up to the vanishing, John Keith concluded that the only answer that made sense to him was that Dorothy took her own life as a result of her dreadful writing career, something that she had aspired to be much of her life. In any case, all the opinions of Dorothy's family and friends were simply that, opinions. It is certainly bizarre just how complicated and unusual this case is. A well-known woman just vanishing without any trace at all. It is interesting to me how it seemed all those who were close to Dorothy had entirely different thoughts on what happened to her. Her father believed that she was murdered. Mother, thinking she was still alive. Her former lover, thinking she committed suicide due to her failed career. Some friends believing she took her own life because of her doomed relationship, while others thinking she had staged her disappearance to just get away from her controlling family and live her own life somewhere else. The theories that I've presented in this episode are just a fraction of those that exist. There are plenty more ideas that are even more vague, convoluted, and at times preposterous. When there is absolutely no evidence or clues to go on, it can be easy to just let your imagination run wild and come up with any possible explanation, because just about any possible explanation could in fact be right. While digging through all the rumors and theories, I had a hard time coming up with an explanation that satisfied me. Personally, I do not believe that Dorothy was scheming to run away. It just doesn't make sense in the timeline of her last day. If she did want to leave, I figured she would have taken a large deal of money with her when she left her house, probably even taking her collection of expensive jewelry as well. Also, it'd certainly be odd spending your last moments in your home city buying chocolate in a funny book before vanishing like a ghost to all your family and friends. The foul play theories I don't really buy either, as it seems extremely unlikely that any criminal would attempt to or have the ability to kidnap a woman off of a busy city street during the daytime. Any scream or struggle would have been heard and noticed by a good amount of people. My final thoughts on the mystery then, would be that of all the theories, I would lean towards the suicide explanation. First off, because it was the favorite opinion of her lover, George Griscom Jr., and close family friend, John Keith. These two men, especially George, would have a close relationship with Dorothy and could come up with a conclusion in a more unbiased way than her parents, who were at times more worried about the family's reputation than the well-being and fate of their missing daughter. The ominous phrase that Dorothy wrote in her letter to George, stating, all I can see ahead is a long road with no turning, perhaps hints at her depression and that she saw no way to improve her life. As well as the quote, mother will always think an accident has happened, which could also be a potential clue, indicating that maybe she was thinking of killing herself in a way that could have possibly been seen as an accident, to allow her parents to escape the embarrassment of having a suicide in the family. While I personally hold the suicide theory a little bit above the others, I still have plenty of doubt. Why was Dorothy acting normally by all who encountered her that day if she was overcome with depression? Why would she go out shopping right before she planned on taking her own life? Why wasn't her body found if she did in fact want to die in a way, suggesting it was an accident when she was discovered? There are just too many holes in each of the possible theories for me to confidently commit to any of them which in one way is quite frustrating, but in another way, that is just what makes mystery cases like this so fascinating. There are nearly an endless number of ideas and explanations you could come up with regarding this case. So it would seem that the disappearance of Dorothy Arnold will be yet another strange mystery that will ever be solved. So it is likely that the question will forever go unanswered. How did this young heiress disappear from a busy city street in the middle of a sunny afternoon, never to be seen again? Thank you for listening to this episode of the Strange Matters Podcast. If you have your own thoughts or theories on the disappearance of Dorothy Arnold, or if you have suggestions for future episodes, please feel free to write to us at our email, strangematterspodcast at gmail.com. You can also visit our website, strangematterspodcast.com, where you can listen to, download, and comment on all of our episodes. If you are a fan of Strange Matters and would like to help support the podcast, you can visit our Patreon page. On Patreon, you can pledge a small monthly donation, which helps keep the podcast going. And as an incentive, you can also gain access to exclusive monthly bonus episodes. If you are interested in helping support the podcast, please visit our page at patreon.com slash strangematters, or visit the support us page on our website. Finally, we ask that if you are listening to us on iTunes and enjoy the podcast, please take the time to leave us a rating and a review. It means a lot to us to hear your feedback, and it also helps promote the podcast so we can always reach new listeners. So until the next episode of the Strange Matters podcast, take care, everyone.